Hey, this is Gina Grad. Hi, this is Teresa Strasser. Hi, everyone. This is Mike Errico. Hey there. This is Casey Cavalier. I'm Rocky Rose. And you are listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Lucky you. Welcome to The Jay Franzi Show. A behind-the-curtain look at the entertainment industry with insights you can't pay for and stories you've never heard. Now, here's your host, Jay Franzi. Well, hello and welcome to the show. I am Jay Franzi, and if you're new here, this is where we take a deep dive into the entertainment industry to provide you with valuable insights and entertaining stories. This week, we get to talk to an amazing producer, engineer, and coach. We get to talk with Casey Cavalier. We'll talk to him about how he got his start as a producer, his time in the Wonder Years, and we'll take a deep dive into what it takes to be a coach. Now, Casey has spent over two decades in the Wonder Years, honing his craft and applying his talents to others, and I can't wait to talk to him about that tonight. So if you'd like to join in, comment, or fire off any questions, please head over to jfrenzy.com. Now let's get started. Casey, sir, how are you? I'm great, Jay. Excited to be here. I love the intro of the show. I've listened to it. I've never seen the uh, the live role you cut together. That's awesome. I'm excited. Honestly, I saw some gear. I saw some nice things that perked my interest. I'm ready to chat. <laughs> well, we are excited to have you here, buddy. I mean, this is a, a big deal for us. So I'd like to just jump right in. I mean, it says here that you are a producer, you're an engineer, and you are a coach. I'm going to take a deep dive into your your coaching a little later, but why don't we start with producing? How do you get started with the production side of things? Yeah, not unlike a lot of other engineers, producers started from the artist end. Uh, I played in bands growing up. The origin story of that being the fact that my father was a musician, played in some classic rock bands, cut records on like Paramount, Warner Brothers, had enough of a look at it that uh, there was some gear left lying around the house that he drug around for the next couple decades until I came around and started asking questions about it (laughs) and collecting dust in the attic. So pulled it out, plugged his old Ampeg B-52 and uh, matching 215 cabin, put like a 19, probably like 69 or 70s jazz bass in thing was heavy as hell, but also probably because I was four feet tall. (laughs) And, And it just shook the crap out of the house, windows rattled, and I was like, well, I think I know what I'm doing for the next three, I decades, like this. three decades of my life. Yeah. So everything music in, in terms of like, you know, I was lucky we had like a nice music, like academic program in our, um, in our school district, had some cool mentors there, but also found my way into, um, well, into a punk rock band, uh, essentially that, uh, that started out as a joke. And then <laughs> over the course of, uh, you know, like four or five years when we were all at college, it kind of morphed into something a little bit more serious. And now here we are like two, uh, just about two decades into that band, still with the original lineup somehow, which uh, I'm told the older I get is uh, more and more of an oddity. Yeah. Um, You know, uh, lucky that we've all been able to grow uh, as people together and into people that can also still make music together. So I'm grateful for that. But that, that kind of, had me cutting records with that band for a while, learning that process, learning how to write in group dynamics and kind of becoming fascinated with each band or group of musicians or collaborators kind of creating their own filter. And then any ideas that kind of go through that filter get spit out the other end as that band in hopefully the most authentic sense. And so learning from that, you know, there's only a finite amount of music that one group of people can put out, but I kind of turned my gaze elsewhere and realized there were a lot of bands, younger musicians coming up, making a lot of really cool stuff. And some of them were willing to let me be a part of it and, or ask me to help out. Right. So I realized that I could kind of play a, a, maybe a different role, but also use some of those tools that I had picked up along the way, working in those group dynamics getting the privilege of working with some serious um, heavyweights in the music production industry. We'd done records with um, one of my dear friends to this day, a guy named Steve Evitz, who we've worked with on now like four full-length records, but he's created quite a quite a stir in the 
punk and metal scene over the years and another guy named Joe Ciccarelli, who we worked with uh, a few years back. We cut a record at Sunset Sound on L.A. So um, have seen some pretty cool legendary rooms and worked with some people that have an incredible discography, to say the least, and tried to glean some of that knowledge along the way. And then just turn it around and and see if I can put it to work and, you know, find the people who will let me do it and extend that trust. And and it's been really fulfilling. Well, I want to dive really deep into your production skills and who you're working with and what you're doing and and more importantly, how you're doing it. But you kind of just glossed over, you know, the fact that you were in a band, (laughs) a little band. Let's let's talk about that briefly. The Wonder Years. Sure. Just give us the, the history of that. Absolutely. Yeah. So the band was uh, was actually from Philadelphia and myself, my bass player and the drummer of that band all grew up together going to high school. Actually, my bass player and I have been playing in bands, um, guitar and bass respectively for close to 25 years now. Um, we were, you know, we were little kids when, you know, the, the my first band day, you know, at like 11 or 12 could barely could play on the same fret. That didn't mean it was necessarily in tune, right? (laughs) So, uh, you know, we've been doing it since then and it's come a long way. You know, so like I said, we had all played in different bands in high school, not necessarily together. And there was a local, a really good local scene in the Northeast and outside of Philadelphia where we grew up as well. And, And kind of the next high school over had a lot of bands was probably like two, three times the size of our high school actually at the time. And so there were a lot of incredible musicians coming out of that, that area as well. And, you know, we, we all met and then met eventually what would be my singer uh, and two other guitar players that were playing in a band at the time. It was kind of like a, like a proggy, like indie rock kind of thing, you know, (laughs) As things do, uh, end of high school came, like everybody was like, okay, maybe this band isn't the one. All right, I guess we'll, we'll go to school, see what's next. And uh, before we did that, on one like, I guess just like summer afternoon, right, um, bored, restless, nightfall had not yet set, so we couldn't go, I don't know, do something mischievous. So instead, we took it upon ourselves to kind of get together and write what became a more or less a joke song. I kind of refer to it now as like if Weird Al was in a really bad like Blink-182 cover band, right? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, so we weren't taking it seriously. My, you know, my singer, who was a great lyricist and in all of the these other bands that he had been in, you know, done some really, really amazing stuff lyrically, was kind of like, well, do I write serious lyrics? And we're like, no, absolutely not. Go with the jokes. And that became a song about our disdain for Route 9, which runs through the state of New Jersey. And uh, we thought that that would be that. Turns out it wasn't, obviously, because I'm here about 19 years later talking to you. And we've been doing that ever since. But it has been an evolution. And yeah, we've we've been lucky enough to tour all around the world. We've we've put out seven plus studio albums. We've had we've built a career around this band that seemingly was this couple hours on a whim to kill some time. I was speaking actually earlier with um, with a friend um, by the name of Ben Wyman who played in a band called Dillinger Escape Plan. We were talking about the fact that it, it turns out that uh, the second you kind of let go um, and stop holding on to something so tight, it almost seems like that's when these monumental life shifts start and take hold. And it was kind of the same thing for his band, Dillinger. He had, you know, played in a ton of bands, tried to make it really focused on, you know, gaining an audience, gaining steam. And the band that made it and lasted 20 plus years for him was the one that was kind of just a way to get their frustrations about everything out, um, about how nothing else had really worked and kind of just to be abrasive. So, um, you know, we, we didn't want to be as abrasive, but I think there was a, there's a similar crossover there. And yeah. And that's, that's the story of the wonder years, you know, and there's obviously, as you'd imagine a lot more in there. Oh yeah, of course. And you guys have played some extremely cool shows and you've done quite a bit of projects. I mean, it's a very impressive thing altogether. And now that I know your dad was in the the business, I probably see more of the rock influence. Do you feel like you take on uh, rock influence? You know, it's interesting. I think genres and labels and things like that can be effective tools. You know, they can be shorthand for people trying to describe something to somebody else. So sometimes they can be really useful. I think 
earlier in our career, it was a lane that, you know, we, you, you build certain communities around and certain commonalities around. But as, as we've gotten older with each record, we've kind of cared less and less. We were just like, (laughs) we were like, we're going to keep making the music that we make and whatever that is. And I think in our own way, we we've kind of backed into something that is in its, in its own decided lane, right? Something that is just decidedly wonder years. Yeah. Um, And I mean, there's a little bit of, (laughs) there's a little bit of emo. There's a little bit of alternative rock. I loved like nineties alt rock and alternative specialty stations that I grew up with listening to in Philly. But I also, you know, the rest of the band, there's a ton of influence. I mean, there, we, there's six members. In, which is a very large band. Which is a large band that's not a ska band. Right. I agree. And so <laughs> I think that fact alone is the we, we might all see a, a different song that we write in a slightly different light. But the idea is it gets past all six of us and, and gets out, you know, and, and that's, and that's the authenticity of it, the, the uniqueness of it. And that's kind of more or less, especially with this most recent album that we, that we just put out last fall, the hum goes on forever. That was our goal was to make sure, Hey, let's not worry about which walls, which dynamic, which genre stylistically we're going for. We've made something and we've trusted each other at every point to say if a song gets through all of us and makes it onto the record, it's a wonder your song. And that's, and that's good enough, you know? Um, and that's, and that's the point of it. So, yeah, I, I mean, there is, and we've talked a lot about this uh, over the years to how a lot of people maybe outside of the, you know, that, that pop punk community and or punk rock will look at things like warp tour and say, Hey, there's a stigma there. It's tough to shake that off once you invest in and get entrenched in it. And maybe so, but honestly, uh, we found it to be a very incredibly accepting community of people that were there and were really excited and enthusiastic about music. Wherever you can find that, I think it's great. Also, ultimately, I'm a firm believer that you can't really choose your fans, right? You know, your fans are going to end up choosing you (laughs) in the end. Don't try too hard to like slice and dice and, you know, and, and, and pander to just the exact cross section because it might backfire anyway. Well, that's funny. I mean, you just mentioned emo, which made me laugh only because that's what my daughter said. Oh no, it's there. Oh, it's very much there. <laughs> I'm managing an Irish emo band right now. <laughs> um, they're, and they're, and they're fully in it. And there's like, there's nostalgic tinges of like the early My Chem stuff, but it is, it is, I mean, you know, this music is in its own way cyclical. And I think the cycles are just getting shorter because things are moving more, more rapidly these days. You know, I've always believed that, right. It's like, if your parents aren't hating it, it's not cool. Right. So it's like, it's just the threshold changes with the, with the error, you know? Um, I think that's, I think it's funny, but yeah, call it, it's like, it is an emotionally cathartic uh, experience. If you've been to a show or listened to one of our albums that, that I will not disagree with. Well, it's good for me because my daughter is, she's just turned 13 and she's just now starting to, to get into music seriously. And she's taking guitar lessons and, and the fact that she's coming to me with music that I like, it makes me feel good. So some of the bands that she's trying to learn and stuff, it's more of the stuff that I would lean towards. I love that. So let's go back to the, the production piece for a second. Do you find your production skills and abilities are now influencing what you do in the wonder years? You know, I think, I think it definitely goes both ways. I think initially my experience under the hood, working on songs with wonder years informed the way I approached, you know, the other bands I work with, not necessarily from a a stylistic standpoint and trying to put a wonder years mold on, on another band, but from having the empathy and understanding of what it feels like to be, inside of a band dynamic to know what it feels like and understand when someone is coming with an idea and somebody else immediately shuts it down instead of ruminating on it or talking through why it's maybe not the right fit for them. I think it's, it's a communication thing. And I think that is what informs a lot of how I approach even like pre-production and songwriting with artists and, uh, and vice versa. There are tools and there are challenges uh, and everything's kind of a puzzle. And I think it's, you know, 
typically an artist will come at least with some semblance of a song, although, you know, occasionally we'll write something from scratch, but usually there's an idea, a lyric, a topic, a theme, you know, a bit of a chorus, a verse, or, you know, a verse that is their chorus and they don't know it yet, you know, um, something like that. And, uh, and so sometimes I'll take those, those exercises, if we, you know, something works and at least bring it back in to, you know, the wonder years, like kind of drawing board and writing room occasionally and say, well, I did do this. That doesn't mean it will work here, but again, it's a tool. It's a technique. Me like, let me put what we have here through that, through that lens real quick and play with it. Even if it doesn't make it out, I'll, I'll maybe like do the math in my brain real quick to see if it maybe has legs. Right. So it definitely works both ways. And I think it keeps me reinvigorated because I, I work with bands that sound very dissimilar from what Wonder Years, you know, sound like as well. And bands that know my band are, are familiar with it, appreciate it, but definitely know the things that they don't want to sound like about it too. And I love that because I think sometimes that's maybe a really important part that people kind of cruise on by, which is what don't you want to do? Well, you know what I mean? Like you, you, there's a lot of things that you can do creatively and a lot of ways that you can sound let's start with what you don't want to sound like, you know, and sometimes that can be a really interesting access point. And I mean, that's something that we, um, we as a band have always kind of gone back and forth on and, and trying our best to communicate. Okay. If you don't love what, what we just did here, you know, with this passes of music or this song's not working instead of those frustrations that can come, we turn it around and say, okay, well, what don't you like about it? You know, be as specific as you can. And so those are tools that, I mean, across the board really help. And I think that, um, you know, finishing records as well is a really difficult part, <laughs> getting to the finish line. And that is something that uh, we've been forced to do. And I've been forced to walk through sometimes a very long and arduous process a number of times with Wonder Years, even before I started doing singles, EPs and albums for other bands and other projects. And I think it teaches you patience. It teaches you um, the idea that, hey, finish it. It's going to do more for you if you finish it and then can look at it and in the rear view and as a finished product and have perspective as opposed to trying to, you know, completely manipulate every little fraction of it and, and not stepping forward. So that's, for me, the biggest lesson, especially so many albums in those decisions that I, you know, as a kid was dying on the hill for, <laughs> I don't think that they really may have mattered as much as it turns out. They felt like they did at the time, but I try to at least pass that perspective along wherever possible. Do you find that your success has made getting the work easier? You know, it's interesting. It's not, I, I think a lot of people would assume that, but what I will say has been Actually, the, the older I get to, the more interesting this is. Uh, there's a little bit of like a nice built-in anonymity with myself, the rest of the band members, and, and where we exist in the space we exist in, right? Because there's a really robust, what I'll say, like middle section of artists that are playing one to 3,000 cap rooms, have a really incredibly devout and supportive and passionate fan base, and have been doing that for decades. But are, you know, I, I always joke, it's like there are times where it's all it's all dependent on who you end up standing next to. And it's all relative. If someone says, wait, are you famous? I'm like, it depends on who you ask, because to that guy over there that doesn't know me. No, I'm just I'm just some asshole. Right? You know what I mean? Like that's in, that's in his way. But to somebody else, it's oh, my God, that's the guitar player from the Wonder Years. It's all contextual. But sometimes what's interesting is because I haven't been a producer and a lot of friends that played in bands earlier, but started producing, you know, much sooner if their bands didn't take off or broke up or whatever, built a lane and built a brand as a producer and worked really at that one decided thing. Meanwhile, I was spending many more years for like eight, nine, 10 months out of the year on the road, you know, well, even though I was building relevant skill sets, you know, that will help me do the job now. I was not doing as much of that and I was not doing as much personal branding. I was very invested in building wonder years as a focus, right? So that is to say that it, it does not cast as large of a net. However, it does open the door for some conversations at times, right. maybe intentionally or un unintentionally, right? You know, but I also, again, I don't think that that should qualify me <laughs> to say I am the say all and be all perfect person to produce your record. I, I think it's all about 
personalities meshing and philosophies meshing, right? And and seeing if I see the vision for your record, you know, or if it's a similar one, it may be a very different one. And that's okay. Even if Wonder Years is your favorite band, there might be a lane where I'm the first person to say, I'm not your guy for this. Cause I don't, I don't see this, how this is working in this way, you know, or maybe I'm asking some questions and the answers that you're giving me about what you're trying to do are, uh, are not, jiving with you know with the way i i like to proceed in the process i like to use and and that's okay you know i think that's that's actually important right that sometimes a no is more valuable than uh, a maybe or stringing you along so if i can give somebody a no quicker that means they can go find the right person faster and i'd much rather that be the case i've had a few of those moments myself i mean you're not fit for every band that comes your way no. Even some bands that I really liked, I've turned away because I didn't feel like I could do them justice at that moment in time. Yeah. So I definitely can understand that. But that also goes back to the fact when you're a producer, there's different types of producers. It's easy to say, well, you, this person's a guitar player and this person's a drummer. But when you say this person's a producer, the spectrum is much wider. So what type of producer are you? Ah, yeah. So are we talking on like, um, on like the, what is it? Uh, Albini to Feldman scale here? Like, am I, am I getting under the hood and completely building well, a new engine? You can or get am as, I just... as deep under that hood <laughs> as you want. And I'm hoping that you're not going to lean too close to Albini, but go um, ahead. No, it's well, so um, what I will say, and, that, and that's just uh, for anybody that if you know those two names, that's kind of like the hand, like, like most hands-on versus kind of like hands-off, like I'm just right. the guy to capture. So I think it's a sliding scale, right? I I, t I tend to try to meet a band, a always like where they are. Uh, I don't have a hard and fast. This is how I work. If you want me, that's what you get. Because I think it's good to continue to challenge yourself and continue to try and stretch, just like we have with Wonder Years. So I never want to, you know, come in and say this is my model. This is what you get take it or leave it. I want to have a conversation and see if there's something interesting there that's going to excite me, keep me intrigued, give me an opportunity to go and, and play with something new and maybe uncover something new in my tool set or uh, about how I think about things and see music. So I, I think that is the case. And I am very much a, is it serving the song, but does the song serve the artist? And there are some artists that don't yet know what that means, right? They don't yet know which songs will serve their, their long-term vision. And then there are some artists that come in and say, this is my long-term vision. And now I need to get songs that fit inside of that. And I always think it's interesting, but um, truthfully, uh, I'm always about, hey, are we coming out with something my whole thing is by the end of it, my job is to make sure that the record that you get sounds like your record, that you don't listen back to it and say, this sounds like Casey's record, that you don't listen back to it and say, this record sounds good, but it feels like I, I don't know where I am in it, right? <laughs> I don't think that's good for anybody because even if that's great, if it didn't actually come from the artist, you're kind of just handicapping them and wasting time for them and maybe everybody else around them that's trying to push the record. Because if, if that's not what they're doing and what's kind of coming from them, there's going to be a finite amount of that. And then you're going to get stuck and then you're going to be like, well, we need to do that again. You're the only person that can do it. And you can't, you can't be there. The whole point is to try and help guide the vision. And that's where I come in. I'd rather say, Hey, if this is the only record we ever work together, but you take something really valuable away of like learning something about what works for your band and it's something really unique I'm talking about guys like Evitz and, um, and bands like Dillinger escape plan. Some of that stuff is really abrasive and not always perfect and a little rough around the edges, but sometimes you have a, you have a producer at the helm that instead of trying to like perfectly shape and polish everything, has the courage to say that 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 was it that no like it. that's awesome right <laughs> you know and and pull that out and make that a moment instead of trying to hide it tuck it away or or sterilize it and that for me i think is a big point too now some bands are are more talented players than others and even across it within every band right there's different skill sets and levels and strengths and weaknesses i think my goal and sometimes this takes a little bit of time to understand it is figuring out what those strengths are, figuring out what the unique points are and saying, do the songs that we have 
present an opportunity to pull those out and create the best possible moments that this band has done? And if, if the answer is yes, and, then, and I kind of see that and see where it's going, then I'll take the project. And that's, and that's the goal for me. And sometimes that means different things. Sometimes that means getting in to the weeds and doing a little co-writing, doing a little, you know, heavy handed pre-pro. And this is actually something that I learned from Joe Ciccarelli who hit that man's discography is I un, unbelievable for anybody that might not be familiar with him. He's done everything. Talk about uh, arena, like rock anthems, uh, you know, the guy that did icky thump, uh, <laughs> you know? So, uh, so that was a lot of pressure, but he had a lot of, he came with, um, instead of saying, I don't like this or no, that's not good. When we were in the room doing pre-pro, you know, for about a week before we did the record, and I've taken this and I have to give him the credit where credit is due. He said, I, I have some questions. And uh, instead of that, it's just like, you know, so why did you, you choose to go from there straight into there? Or why did this little piece of music, you know, what's the, what's the reasoning behind that? You know, and then the band explains. And instead of being like, I don't like this thing, it sucks, it doesn't work, trying to understand and ask a better question. Because if the artist says something like, well, I just thought that like that groove transitioning into that groove, they were the same thing. So I, I needed to shift something a little bit. So it felt like it reset and hit. And it's like, well, why don't you just change the groove in the section before it? And then you don't need to add that little piece of music, right? So it's a better question. And uh, I find that that's a nice way to get bands to open up a little bit more and to understand the intent behind things before just, you know, saying yes or no, or coming with some heavy handed opinions. So that is, that is what I, I have taken. And I, it is a tool that has really served me well, even in a lot of tough scenarios. Well, I think the things you're discussing are spot on the, the approach of things, but I think what's allowing you to have that approach is the fact that you have more tools in the tool belt than most. So you have the ability to play guitar. So you have the ability to write a song. So you, you have the ability to work with somebody. It takes a, a true leader, in our case, the producer being the leader, to be able to guide somebody through that process. Yeah. So for you to be able to identify it, that takes a really special person because most people aren't aware of it. Or like you said, they put their stamp on it because they'll go in the studio and they'll just hire the people that they know can get the job done. Right. So there are truly different types of producers. And I think that you have that special ability by having all of those tools. I think that's one thing that makes a producer like yourself stand out. I mean, how often do you utilize the tools? So for example, how often are you actually playing guitar on some of these songs? Earlier today. <laughs> um, you know, so now what's interesting is the pandemic pushed a lot of um, a lot of us, I think, in just in general in the music industry into exploring more remote scenarios. Right. So. For me, the studio that I had in New Jersey, it, you know, we weren't able to, to do in-person stuff for a little bit. And then when I moved so my studio is still there, a lot of my my wonderful gear is still there, but I'm in Atlanta <laughs> um, and, and occasionally work out of other studios, but, and we'll go back and forth to Philly just because the band's still based there. So I, so I still have that studio and we'll cut stuff out of it on occasion. But really what I ended up realizing was that finding the right people, the people that inspired me and again, find the right fit. Sometimes those people are not in the local proximity to you or your studio, right? And also sometimes they are really willing to meet you there with what they may be lacking in the resources to come live, relocate and and work out of an entire studio for an extended period. And I think this, this goes to where the whole industry has shifted anyway. And in that conversation, I, I've almost started taking a bit of a hybrid approach and saying, how can I work with, and it, you can't do this with every band, of course, but work with bands that have strengths that are, that have, you know, either somebody in their midst that has been honing their engineering or home studio recording skills. And can we work remotely to throw sessions back and forth and produce these songs you know, do the rewrites and then rely heavily on either another engineer in their city that they trust and or that I trust or some other 
sort of hybrid model, whether that comes down to, you know, me finishing up some of the guitar production remotely, you know, and with their approval and after talking through it. So I, I've begun exploring a lot of that. And yes, so that actually in that way, sometimes it is much easier for me to kind of just pick up a guitar and say, here's just toss a DI track on. It's like, this is what I was thinking. And they're like, that's great. Can we just use that? It sounds just, great. I, just you know it. what I mean? And we're, and and the answer actually is yes. And in terms of that, what's what's interesting too is I see a lot of bands coming to me with demos now. Some of them were like, well, this was the actual recording, but it was five years ago, and we're kind of now realizing it's not that great. But uh, but there's still some charm in moments where they spent a lot of time trying to get some sounds that they like, and I am not in any way averse to pulling or scrubbing moments from demos and using them in the final production. There's sometimes we're just like prints or, you know, someone will print stems from whatever studio and they're like, well, we don't have like the raw files. This is just like the sound effects track. And I'm like, whatever, I'll clip it. And I'm, I'm going to fly it in because I like the character. And I think I don't want, I don't want to lose it. You know what I mean? Like that's also a risky run. Sometimes there's, there's that real lightning in a bottle stuff. And if it was great, even if it wasn't like perfect, does it do something for you? Does it, you know what I mean? Like, does it make you feel something? Yeah. Right. Okay. Then, then that's just leave it, about. you know? And that's, and, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, Jay, that is a hard lesson to learn. I was a perfectionist when I was a kid. That's what I thought made all of those records amazing is that they were perfect, that they were spotless that I was listening to. And, uh, the older I get, the more records I realize, oh, they're not really spotless or the things that I actually love. That's the, that's the bad stuff. You know what I mean? That's the, that's the mess up, you know, that somebody just saw it in a different light and built it into the mix. And now that's, you'll never have not have that, you know, that song is not the same without it. So I, I chase those a lot too. And, and sometimes those come out of things that, that people, you know, do by accident, you know what I mean? Or have like wacky settings on, you know, when they're recording and get a weird feedback thing or a weird squeak. And instead of trying to, you know, spending a thousand hours with RX and plugins, trying to like reshape these audio waveforms say, Hey, can we make it work in a cool way? You know? Um, or do I miss it when I mute it? And a lot of times I find, yeah. So that's kind of how I've, you know, I've been doing that and opening myself up to a less perfect idea of that. Now, don't get me wrong. I also am a fan of if the opportunity presents itself to work a little smarter, <laughs> you know, um, and use the tools that are at hand, right? I'm not like an analog tape purist um, in the sense, you know, but I do know we, Sister Cities, the record, like I said, that we did with Joe Ciccarelli at Sunset Sound, we cut all of those live all in the the live room of studio one so 85 percent of that record was just us ripping through takes and sure there were you know a few overdubs a few punches here a few doubles but um i was really proud of that because if, if you can you know you can learn a lot about a song if you can go in and like run through it and then listen back on the board and say it's all there, you know, um, not you don't have to suspend reality anymore you can literally play it as a band just the six of you, no additional stuff, walk in and say, that sounds like a record. And then you know that you did everything from an arrangement standpoint, a writing standpoint, a pre-production standpoint, the tempo, that everything is working as it should before a single edit or punch point gets put into the mix, you know? And I think there, there's a power and strength in that and knowing that you can shoot for that kind of thing and that a record can sound like that in a room and that you're really just trying to capture it, even though you might do it, go about it a little bit differently in a little different order nowadays. So. Well, I'm a little bit older than you, maybe by a day or two. And I grew up where we had tape machines and then we switched to digital tape and then we switched to ADETs and yep. which also digital tape and just through everything right to the, to where we are today. And I thought it was funny one day I was teaching at the college and I had Eddie Kramer come in as a guest speaker. And one of my students looked at him and said, you know, he was all proud of himself, gets up there and he's saying, just like you, I only record drums with one or two microphones. And Eddie Kramer just looked at him and he said, 
we used one or two microphones because we were limited to one or two microphones. If we had the ability to put 12 microphones on a drum kit, we would have. Right. And then all of a sudden you could see everybody's wheels start turning and everybody's head just cocks to the side. I think like anything else, they're tools. So what yeah. we have at our disposal, it has the right moment. And if we're not choosing the right moment, that's our fault. Again, as the producer, as the person leading the session, we need to be able to choose the right tool for the right moment. So do you take liberties or do you take the liberty to make changes to people's arrangements or productions once the recording is done and they've left the building? Uh, I usually, the understanding is that that's kind of exactly what I'm going to do. But if they don't like something that I, I call it pitching, uh, hopefully the idea would be that I have extended enough trust to them to say, hey, I, maybe even mentioning an idea or maybe in a mixed phase, especially if it's something that I'm seeing all the way through. I'd like to say, hey, if I have some things that I'm hearing in the moment, is it okay if I run with them? And nine times out of 10, we've established a lane, you know, of trust that, that they're okay with it. And it can always, I'm not, again, I'm not like, messing up tape here, you know what I mean? Or like slicing and dicing. Undo. Yeah, you know, you can always hit the undo button. But I, but I like, especially that we talk about the tools and, and using them like in the right way. That is what I think the digital domain does allow us to do. It allows us to experiment very liberally without great consequence. You know, um, now it can be a runaway train again, like we said, but that is what I really think that extra. And I think that's what anybody gets. And that's what I would want somebody to do because I've seen what that extra little bit of grind does is I want to push. I want to, I want to try to push, not just for me, not because I don't want someone to think, Oh, this producer just is doing a bunch of like sound toys, kickflips <laughs> on this track. Right. I want it to, to bring something even more out. And usually it's, you know, it's an embellishment. And if it's like a thing and a moment that we were already talking about already being a moment, if I see a way to make it even bigger or even more special, yeah, then I, then I'm going to go for it. And rarely, you know, uh, occasionally, some, sometimes this happens, right? In hindsight, something is just not working the way we drew it up, right? It's just not doing it. We get to the end and it's just, I don't know why this transition, it's not hitting. I thought in the room, I thought it was, again, it's pretty rare. This is why I like to do, if possible, pre-pro with a band or get live demos of the band playing it to the tempo map so that I actually hear the vocalist and the drummer and everybody playing and, and make sure that no one's fighting each other. Occasionally we'll go back and, I, and I'll say, Hey, I'm going to bow out and say, I, you know, that it's not working, but I, I don't want to, you know, just try and shoehorn it and make it work because it was my idea. You know, if I, if I was wrong, I, I want to tell you, it's like, that's also part of my job at the end of the day is to be like, you're coming to me for my opinion and for my taste palette as a producer. And right now, if I'm saying, Hey, I don't think that this is as good as it can be. Will you allow me to go chase some ideas and try some different things with it? And at the risk of that, you know, of course, if they're like, no, we love it. I'm like, again, it is your record, but I have at least said my piece and been willing to try to go the extra mile <laughs> to, to figure out what is, what is still bugging me. But other than that, you know, I think that in an ideal scenario, for sure, like getting things as close as possible and again, printing some things down and and not leaving every possible decision until later. I'm a firm believer in that. I have come up, Steve Evitz, again, he he started cutting those punk records to tape at Traxxas many years ago in the 90s. And that mindset has followed him all the way through. And I appreciate it too as a guitar player. I think if you're shaping a song and shaping the mid-range of a song and all of that, the quicker you can know what you're aiming for, the better informed a decision three, four, five steps down the line on that song is going to be. So well, you have to be thinking like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I think that's how, you know, that's how you had to think in the old school. It's like, if you ran out of, out of tape, out of tracks, out of <laughs> space in the frequency, you know what I mean? Like you, <laughs> you knew kind of what you were shooting for and, and you, anticipated a lot of that. And I think a little bit of that is lost because you can kind of just go backwards and re-sculpt and, and reshape and try to make anything fit into anywhere now. But um, I do try to take that approach when, when going into things for sure and, and say, hey, let's get it down, put it right there. Or if it's not working, don't just leave it for as a problem to fix later because it might mess up something else that we start trying to do. And if we commit to something now, 
that might give us a better lane for an idea later when we go to finish this off. So, Well, I think you're spot on that you have to experiment, but you have to know when to pull the plug as well, because not every experiment yeah. is a good one. And unfortunately, time is money when you're in the studio and it's yeah. typically not your money. So how do you find that balance then between your experimentation and actually putting your own stamp on a project? Yeah, so um, that's a good one. And I, I guess I'd start by saying something similar to how I was kind of describing the the Wonder Years filter, right? Um, that, uh, you know, if a song gets checked off by all six of us and makes it onto a record, it's a Wonder Years song. It has to be. That's that's the definition of it that we have created. We have built that machine, right, that will take ideas and only spit them out in the form of a Wonder Years song. Now, for me, I think, and I was mentioning just a moment ago here, talking about your taste and refining your taste and seasoning your palate as a songwriter, as a guitar player, as a band member, and in this case, as a producer. And I think for me, that's the inherent way that I gravitate towards making certain choices. And they are a bit malleable in the sense that if I worked with an artist that pushes back on some of them and or really in their own way, maybe gravitates towards others of them. I think that for me is trusting that instinct in those moments, you know, <laughs> and trusting myself. There's actually, this is a reason why now I do a lot of my at least basic preliminary, like mixing or production, you know, like chopping and screwing, so to speak, when I'm doing something, it's all at a standing desk because the second, the second I can like start moving around and I stop like looking at the screen or thinking, then I know I'm there. Then I know I'm like, I'm, I'm close and it's doing what I want it to do that my feet can move. I'm in a position where the music is starting to not be a point of construction. And it's just starting to feel like a song in the same way you respond to a finished song, you know, on the radio, in a club, at a venue. So that's part of my taste palette that I let physically, emotionally, I try and look for and I try and trust and lean into as much as I can. And I think if I do that, and I'm guided by that and then guided by the fact that I know an artist is happy with where they're going and if they share in that enthusiasm, then that is always going to, like I said, there's going to be a part of me in that record. Now, again, the whole the thing is it's not supposed to be my record. And I, I, don't, I don't want people to be thinking about the producer. I want them to just be listening to the record and just say, Hey, this is an incredible song. I love this. This is amazing. And in the same way, it's like that you're making the artist look good. And, uh, I think it should be about serving the song, which ultimately serves the artist, you know, and it's, it's kind of a selfless thing too, in some ways. And I'll be honest, like, I, I think we've all grappled with that, right? There are some times where I'm like, no, nah, my idea is great. Like, I, <laughs> I think it's, let's do this. I think it's good. I think it's better than that idea. But after enough of those, <laughs> you, you start to realize it's just like, ah, this song could have gone two different ways and been a great song, but it went this way and that's okay. If I if it had just been me, it would have maybe gone in the complete opposite direction. And maybe that's not a great thing in that moment, you know, for whatever we needed it to be. So I think that's how, you know, leaving the creative stamp. I think it's subtle. It's like a it's a bit of a watermark, right? It's not just like this massive rubber stamp or like huge etching, you know, that ruins the piece of art. If you look at like a nice like canvas painting or whatever, it's like, you know, it's usually just either on the back or at the bottom corner, like very, like very subtly in there. It's not, you know, the artist is not taking the work that they just kind of built and just graffitiing their name all the way across it in big, <laughs> bold letters. The art should speak, not, you know, not the signature. Right. So I guess that's maybe a, a reasonable metaphor for how I kind of think about it. I really love the signature on this painting. It's just amazing. <laughs> Look at the detail. Look at the Y, right. the tail on the you Y. See, is just incredible. The, you see the curve there? Yep. Uh, well, there's probably a thousand more questions I could ask you about your production process, but I do want to take a little bit of a deeper dive into your coaching. Can you just tell us what your coaching is like? Sure. So actually, interestingly, it kind of goes back to me starting to work in the studio and starting to produce and, and mix bands. And before I came down to Atlanta, uh, you know, I was working with uh, a lot of bands in the, you know, the Northeast region out of True Level Studio. And we'd come in, we, 
do a song together, do, you know, an EP, maybe even get ambitious, do maybe their first full length or something of that. And inevitably what I started noticing was a pattern that we would get done. They would feel really good. They'd feel really empowered, feel like they learned a lot about themselves as an artist and had a really solid footing and were, and were really excited to move forward with the release. Maybe like a couple weeks later, I would always get a text and it would always start very unassuming, like, so like, what do you think the best way to like release this on DSPs is, you know, like, should we, should we do it like kind of like all at once or should we do it like one song every like, you know, four weeks or like every eight weeks or does it matter? Um, and then it would, they would keep building and building and, you know, one question after another. And then I was like, all right, listen, the next time you come in, we got to finish off or like, listen back to the masters. Let's just put an extra hour aside and we'll, we'll just talk strategy. Right. And you can kind of, you can do the proverbial brain picking if you will, but I'll try to give you a little bit better focus of what I would prioritize stuff. If I was, if I was an independent artist at that level, starting out right now, based on the tools that I have and things that I've seen work for wonder years and other bands. And then that started, you know, happening a little bit more. And, and I kind of, you know, just liked getting cr that creative end of taking the ideas from the songs, the themes from the songs, the spirit and the energy from the songs and figuring out what that might look like and turning that into copy, whether it was for a bio refresh for the band that really encapsulated where they were going with the album and and also kind of like did a little bit better job at pattern interrupting that didn't sound super vanilla and really, you know, was going to easily get washed over as a, uh, as local band fodder or whatever. And then, um, yeah, then that pandemic hit and it turns out that a one-on-one -on -one conversation was one of the only things you could still really do super effectively in the new landscape of zoom. And so I started doing that and said, Hey, the bands that can't tour, some of them are going to just be like, well, I can't do any of this. I can't be a musician. I guess I'll just wait and, and use it as an excuse. And other bands were going to use it as time to educate themselves and learn new things and, and try to try, try to keep grinding and keep themselves busy. And I decided to kind of open myself up to the possibilities of what that would be like working with some of those artists. And I had a couple reach out to me, some international in some interesting time zones and it just throughout the last couple of years it's kind of grown into this thing that i realized i realized i guess how much i knew right i realized how much you absorb and take in from just doing it from logging the miles touring from from being in a band and building a business and learning how that functions right and then playing with all the different release strategies and promotional tactics and playing the artist versus label game and then being in and out of the studio and understanding those dynamics. As you mentioned earlier, it's like I, I realized I had this like kind of 360 degree um, understanding of what it was like to be a band and try to <laughs> try to build something, you know, cohesive and meaningful in the music business while still maintaining integrity as a songwriter and as an artist. Right. And I noticed that, you know, the release portion uh, of a lot of music is, is an extension of the, the creativity that goes into making the album. And I think a lot of artists I started seeing get real frustrated because Unfortunately, the narrative nowadays is is so attention based, and they are told, well, Instagram, TikTok, that's the only place. Like, you got to spend all your time there. If you're not, there's a thousand other bands that are. You shouldn't even try. And um, and it gets real rigid. And there's so much. And again, online, there is it's such a wealth of information. But sometimes I think that can be the most harmful because <laughs> there's so much conflicting information, and it's like, where do you start? I made a record. I, I, I learned, I took like 18, 19 years to figure out how to like make an EP that sounds good. That sounds like the music I want to make. And I want to be uh, known for now I got to go like sift through an endless, an endless world of, you know, learning how to do this, that, and the other, and, or trying to figure out which one is more important than the other, what order, order of operations type stuff. And so nonstop learning process non, it, and it and it really is and and you know and luckily i will say not only did some of these artists you know i, I like to think that yes i i helped them um with figuring out what they could prioritize to make some better decisions and kind of establish some 
some really critical thinking frameworks uh, in in terms of approaching how their music is marketed, how they lay out and make choices about the type of brand that they would like to start creating, not just by like one song right now, but, you know, by seven, eight, nine, ten albums across and stretching it out a little bit, which is not something that people think about right now. It's all about very instant gratification. And, and I've, I've seen the power of time <laughs> and what it can do to extrapolate and amplify those results. And, they also kind of found me and helped me in, in a way because it reinvigorated what I already, I already love learning and, and self-improving, but I realized that there's a whole new world and a whole new music landscape that is opening up and changing and shifting. And there is so much more to learn, but in an exciting way, you know, and a lot of people can take a, take a look at that and say, it's, it's so highly daunting and overwhelming let me pack it in. I, I can't be a part of it anymore. And the pandemic uh, really challenged, I think, a lot of people's convictions and had them rethink some things. And for me, it showed me that the person that I am as a constant self-improver that is looking for ways to optimize what I do, be a better creator, be a better person, be a better friend, be a better bandmate, all those things could be very, very useful in this interesting um, coaching and mentoring landscape. And sometimes that kind of feedback at the right time from a real human being, whether or not it, they're in a band that these artists looked up to or not, that's sometimes like the really priceless good stuff. Instead of just taking another course, watching a series of YouTube videos and trying to apply it. Yeah, that's that's the experimentation you can see. But sometimes they just having a conversation and saying, you know, it, to me, my favorite part of this is when an artist comes to me and says, what like, what's the silver bullet? Like, what's the magic pill? What's the, you know, what am I doing wrong? And my answer is maybe the least fulfilling answer to them, but also the most powerful one that I've been able to give, which is you're doing the right things. Just keep doing it. Like if you were going to give up tomorrow because you were frustrated, I'm here to tell you don't do that because the things that you are doing are right. And people out there deserve, you owe it to those people to keep going, to try to get this to them, to find them. And, um, and that doesn't, that doesn't mean that it, you know, it just gets easier when you hear that. But for me, there have been times in my story was that there was always a mentor, somebody I respected, whether it was a producer, a world-class guitarist, some of the educators that, that were in my school district that I was really lucky to have to inspire me, not just with punk rock, but just in an eclectic world of appreciation for music, the performance and the business of it. They were always there to give me a little bit of respect, give me a little bit of time, uh, you know, the time of day. And that meant the world to me because that showed me, it's like, well, they, they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to go that extra mile or like sit down with me, but they did. And that's what kept me going. And maybe in the back of my head kept me thinking, maybe this, maybe it is possible, you know, and, and got me a few steps down the road and, here we are. Right. Uh, you know, there are days that I still wake up and I'm just like, am I even any good at this? You know? <laughs> um, and then I just, but now I get to laugh because I'm like, that's great. That'll never go away. The day I die, I'll be like, did I really do anything? You know, um, on the better days, I, you know, you fight through it. And uh, for anybody, I'm sure your audience, some people have probably read Stephen Pressfield's war of art. That book is incredible. And he talks about the idea that resistance as he calls it will always be there as a creative I'm a firm believer that every day you're going to wake up and, and that's the battle. But if you can get in, keep getting into the ring, you know, again and again, that is the chore. So if I can help somebody get into the ring, <laughs> um, you know, the day that they want to hang it up for good. And especially if, especially if they're a fighter that, that has something that's worth, that's worth fighting for, then that makes me feel good. And, and that's what the, the, the one-on-one -on -one coaching that I, that I'm doing and, and have been doing, selectively in between touring has been and that's why it's been really fulfilling well you're from philly so you get the rocky quotes you know mm -hmm. it ain't about how hard you hit it's about how hard you get hit and get up and keep moving forward there you go that's right yeah yeah i guess it is really baked into uh <laughs> baked into my ethos huh <laughs> i love that well being a coach and being a producer are really just a natural step one to the other. I mean, the producer is nothing but a coach. 
They're just a coach on the front end. Yeah. So I can kind of see how it's natural for you to make that progression into being a development coach after the fact. So we do this segment here that we call Unsung Heroes, where we take a minute to shine some light on somebody who's behind the scenes that might not get some credit. Do you have anybody behind the scenes that you would like to shine a little light on? Ooh, yeah. Wow. Honestly, so many people. I just uh, I just signed a nice Mother's Day card that I'm going to get in the mail tomorrow that's pretty much a pamphlet of cats that I think she'll get a big kick out of. <laughs> but I cannot sing my mother's praise enough. <laughs> um, first and foremost, you know, I, I was really lucky, like I, like I mentioned, to have to have parents that uh, that supported the decision and the pursuits of things like music, especially when it was quite abrasive <laughs> at times on a repeated basis. And um, I don't think that can go understated. But beyond that, I, I mean, behind the scenes, I, I'll also, well, I got a couple people. Um, I feel like, uh, you know, I'm accepting an award or something. But um, <laughs> my partner, uh, you know, and, and um, my girlfriend, the Boston sports fan who you'd love. Yes, thank you. She, uh, she um, in spite of that. Your better half. We got it. Oh, go <laughs> that's ahead. right. You know, it takes a lot. And, I, and I've, uh, I, I wrote a blog about this um, on my website because I thought it was really important. And uh, basically the idea that, you know, the community and the people that surround you are really the ones that empower you. So be careful about who you choose to surround yourself with. And that goes specifically for, you know, the people in your direct network, because those are the ones that will have to understand. And they are making a really big sacrifice if you are going to be a musician or honestly in in a lot of different parts of the entertainment business, because the hours are, are bad <laughs> to some degree, whether that means being on tour for like six, eight months at a time and away, or, you know, up all night or getting up super early and waking them up every day. And there's a whole lot of other things that go along with it. But that sacrifice is really important. And I, I truly wouldn't be able to do half of what I do, if not more, if I hadn't had people that understood that on some level and understood that for me to follow this, that I'm, you know, I'm going to try to do the best I can with balance. But you mentioned kind of striking a balance earlier in the conversation, Jay. And I think the biggest thing for me is um, that that's a fallacy. The the work-life balance, it's never going to be like perfectly pitched. It's just not as a creative and it's going to, it's going to ebb and flow. And that might be in longer strides, the pendulum, you know, might, kind of go back and forth, um, a little quicker sometimes. And then it might be like a real, I look at my life, you know, the last 20 years has been in album cycles, right. And that time shifts a little bit and is different, but I think that's the perfect example of that. And, and for me, it's like, so anybody around you that is willing to understand that and make the sacrifices because they understand how important it is, they're the unsung heroes that are helping these records get made, you know, and that are helping these people chase this stuff that, that ultimately makes, can make a really huge impact. Having somebody on your side is really what it takes. And not many people have that. I get up every morning with the energy to move forward and accomplish the next task, but it takes people behind you to give you that energy. Well, you talk about books to read. If you haven't read it yet, Go out and check out Rebel Talent. Very, Ooh. very good book. I haven't heard of that. Who uh, who wrote that? Um, Francesca Gino. But very, very good book. Familiar. Casey, sir, you have any final words you'd like to leave us with? Be good to each other, you know? I'll just, you know, I'll throw that old like world peace chestnut thing out there, but it really is. And like I said, I, you know, I lead with empathy in, in everything that I do. And I think, I think remembering that, uh, especially when so much transpires, not unlike this conversation, ironically enough, Jay, on the internet, it can be easy to forget that like the people behind those words, images, videos are for the most part, aside from some people that like to scalp tickets to our festivals, those are actually just robots um, and AI. But uh, otherwise, they're generally humans, you know, um, and are probably acting out of whether it be insecurities or a litmus of other <laughs> emotions that you also may be grappling with. They just might be grappling with them right now, right? So just take a beat and, and be patient and realize that everybody uh, are all humans just trying to do the best that they can. 
Now, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Casey truly is an amazing musician and an amazing producer. So please join me in giving a big thanks to Casey for joining us this week and sharing his stories. And again, thank you for taking the time to hang with me here. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You can do just that and find the links to everything mentioned in this episode over at jfranzi.com episode 12. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Make sure you visit us at jfranzi.com. Follow, connect, and say hello. This episode has been brought to you by VR Knives, your source for 100% custom knives made by a true rock star. So if you're in the market for a new piece of art, reach out to VR Knives. 407-421-5528. 407-421-5528.